Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Andrew, and I do serve as a pastor here. Let me invite you to take out your Bibles, turn them open to Mark chapter 15. Uh, As you're finding your way to the passage that was just read from us a moment ago, we're going to start our time uh, in the Scriptures a little differently tonight. I want to introduce, some of you may be familiar with this, but others may not, but I want to introduce you to something called the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Back in the 4th century A.D., there a group of church leaders came together and they were discussing, okay, as, as the gospel is going forth and as churches are growing in various places around the known world, uh, what is it that unites us? What is the essence of the Christian faith? What, what, what does it mean to be a church? What, what do Christians believe? And, and they wrote what was called the Apostles' Creed. It's a summation of the Christian faith. It is a summary of the New Testament's teaching, saying this is what uh, Christians can agree upon all across the board. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what we believe as Christians. And so I want to invite you to join me in reading the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, because there's a particular phrase in there that we're going to call attention to tonight, and I just want to uh, let us hear this and read it together, and you can join me uh, now. The words will be appearing on the screen. It begins, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's a wonderful description and summation of the Christian faith. And you might have read through this if this is your first time seeing that creed, that confession of faith, of belief. You might have seen some lines on there that that might raise some eyebrows and you're confused about, one of which might be the, uh, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Understand that the word Catholic in that in that uh, writing refers to universal. It's it's referring to, I believe, in uh, the universal church, the the church that exists um, at all times. I believe in the communion of the saints or the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church spanning all time, all places, all peoples, everywhere. That that is what that means. It's not necessarily a reference to the Roman Catholic Church as we know of it today. It is the universal church. But then there's a phrase that is cued in uh, during the second second stanza, so to speak, and and it's the one that we're going to think about and unpack today. And it's a wonderful phrase. It's a powerful phrase, and it's a phrase that says he, or Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And the reason why it's such an important phrase is because that phrase reminds you and I that Jesus actually stepped into uh, human history, that all the events, all the activities we're reading about and exploring together in the gospel occurred in real human history. That he suffered under a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman governor of Judea from about 26 AD to 36 AD. There are historical sources outside of the Bible that verify his governorship. That phrase, that statement reminds us that Jesus stepped in to human history. 
But more than that, what I want us to think about in light of that phrase, that Jesus not only stepped into human history, Jesus identified with human misery. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Understand that the Jesus we're singing to tonight, the Jesus we are trusting in, is a Jesus who, is, who understands a chief aspect of the human condition, which is suffering. Suffering is par for the course in the world in which we live. Every life in this room will come across suffering in some various way, shape, or form at some point in your life, we will all suffer. And one of the glorious realities of the gospel is that the Jesus we sing to tonight is able to sympathize with us in our sufferings. We serve and follow a sympathetic Savior. This is what the writer of Hebrews would tell us when, when he says... What does he say? He says in Hebrews 4, 16, For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that same writer would go on to tell us to consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Christ, think about Jesus, your sympathetic Savior, the one who suffered under Pontius Pilate. And in tonight's passage, found in Mark chapter 15, we're going to be looking at Jesus' suffering under Pontius Pilate. And I want us to consider three ways in particular of how Jesus suffered. And we're going to kind of walk through it and identify the way Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And then we're going to draw some gospel implications for you and I in the end, and the first way you and I see Jesus suffering here in Mark chapter 15 has to do with the whole idea of injustice. Jesus suffered injustice. This is clear if you've been reading through uh, the gospel of Mark once it's moved into Jerusalem and Jesus is going to the cross and he's entered Jerusalem, he's been conspired against, he's been falsely accused, he's been uh, arrested. And what we find here at the beginning of Mark chapter 15, Jesus is brought before the Roman governor, a guy by the name of Pilate. Now Pilate, as the Roman governor, he had some things that only he, there were certain roles of authority that only he could execute, that only he could do. As the Roman governor of Judea, the one put there by Rome, he was entrusted to do a few things. One, he was in charge of the army. He was also responsible for collecting taxes on behalf of Rome and making sure money was flowing to the government. He was also, uh, perhaps his most important role was, was called uh, keeping the peace. He had to maintain what was called the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. Uh, Pilate had to ensure that there was peace in Judea and Jerusalem in that region. So he had to snuff out any threats to Roman power, snuff out any threats to Roman authority. But then uh, Pilate was also the only one in Jerusalem who could greenlight capital punishment. He was the only one who could actually say, execute so-and-so. Now, you know from last week's passage that the religious council, the Sanhedrin, had already gathered together and conspired to kill Jesus. They wanted to crucify him. They made that decision, and they, they trumped up some charges against Jesus. And now, since that's their resolve, since they've all agreed that that's what they want to do with Jesus, now they're going to Pilate because they need his approval. They need his permission. And so he goes before the Roman governor, and, and Pilate was the kind of guy who... 
You might say governed. If you just do a character, caricature, a character, a character, a char- how do you say? Character study of Pilate <laughs> from the four Gospels. You're going to see someone who, uh, a leader, a governing official who was engaged in what the Germans would call a uh, real politic. He was, he was someone who operated and led out of convenience, not conviction. He did what was most practical in a given situation. He wasn't one to be governed by principle. And in my estimation, that is the worst kind of leadership a country, a people can have. The worst kind of leaders, the scariest leaders, are those who lack conviction. Those who have no overarching principle to their lives. They're easily uh, influenced. They're easily manipulated. Uh, Pilate was a man you might describe as uh, a man without a chest. There was no unifying core to his leadership, no governing value that he carried into his job. He was only going to do what would keep him in power. And so a lot of the decisions he made were made out of self-interest, not out of uh, what was best for the people over whom he ruled. And so you've got to understand that about Pilate if you're going to understand why some of these things go down. The religious leaders know that Pilate is that kind of man. They know he's a man without a chest. He can be manipulated. So they come to Pilate with some charges, uh, but the charges they bring to Pilate aren't necessarily the ones that they were rallied, uh, uh, aroused by in the previous conversation. They were, they were bothered by Jesus' blasphemy, but Pilate could care less about what they interpreted to be blasphemy. Pilate wasn't concerned with that. He didn't really care about the Jewish faith or the Jewish religion. He wasn't a practitioner of that faith. He wasn't a God-fearer in that regard. He let them practice their faith as long as it helped contribute to the peace in the land. But, but he wasn't one of them, and he didn't care about their concerns. And so when they go to Pilate, they bring, according to Luke chapter 23, three specific charges to him. And they were political charges. They were unjust charges. Listen to what is said in Luke 23, verse 2. It says, and they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man, these are the three charges, misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. You see how they're manipulating him. We know that Jesus didn't forbid anyone from paying taxes. So, but this was a charge, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ or a king. Now, Pilate heard that and that's what got his attention. Wait, this is a new king? This is... Uh, someone who's claiming to be a king? Is he going to come try to take my place? Is he going to lead a revolt against Rome? And, and so he hears that, and, and he's processing it when he goes to Jesus in verse 2, and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Is this who you are? But notice how Jesus replies. Jesus replies, you have said so. Now that's a peculiar phrase. When he says, you have said so, it's as though Jesus is saying, uh, yes, I am a king, but uh, you would do well to consider the question that you you were asking. That's kind of the thrust in the original phraseology of what's been translated there. It's, It's you would do well to consider the question that you were asking. It is as you say, but I might not be the type of king that you are assuming I am. 
This is why in John chapter 18, we're given a little more color, a little more detail to the interaction between Pilate and Jesus. And Jesus would explain, this is the type of king that I am. I, I haven't come necessarily to, to, to take over Jerusalem right now. I haven't come to kick out the Romans. I'm not a political leader. I'm not a military figure. That, that's not the type of king and kingdom that I champion. John chapter 18, he would tell Pilate this, my kingdom is not of this world. I am a part of a, an alien kingdom, a kingdom that is not cut from the cloth of all the kingdoms you are familiar with, Pilate, a kingdom that is not like Rome, a kingdom that is not like any of the kingdoms that has risen in this world up to this point or would come later. My kingdom is not of this world. He would speak that clearly to Pilate. And he said this, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered. So on one hand, Jesus is saying, yes, I am a king, but I'm not the kind of king you think I am. Don't compare me to Caesar. I'm greater than Caesar. Don't compare me to yourself. I'm greater than you. My kingdom is not of this world. This is the claim that's being made, but it is confusing to Pilate. He doesn't understand the spiritual realities that Jesus is pointing to. But these are spiritual realities that he's conveying and he's reminding or he's telling Pilate look I've, I've come to establish a kingdom but it's not going to be established the way that you are used to seeing kingdoms established my people are not here to fight you my people are here to love you Pilate was used to the kind of kingdoms that were uh, seized with force and might where you come in and you fight for your position and then you in the end exclude those that you conquer you subjugate them or you exclude them. That's what Pilate was used to. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm here for. He's engaging in spiritual realities, deeper dynamics. Jesus is dealing with the eternal kingdom of God. And his kingdom is unlike anything Pilate would ever, ever know. Now earlier in Mark chapter 12, we've seen Jesus kind of play with this type of relationship between uh, his kingdom and the kingdom of this world, between uh, the, the responsibilities his followers have in the world that is as they live in certain governments and under certain rulers and, and their, the responsibilities they have as citizens, but then the responsibilities they have as, as followers of Jesus. He, there's a moment in Mark chapter 12, you might recall, several weeks ago, where the question is asked of Jesus by the religious leaders about paying taxes. And Jesus responds in that moment with a type of yes and no type of answer. On one hand, he tells everyone, look, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Be a responsible citizen. Look at the currency. You see Caesar's emblem on the currency. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. But what else did he say? He said, but render unto God that which is God's. Who's God's? People. As the currency uh, carried the image of Caesar, human beings carry the image of God. He's saying, yes, pay your taxes, be responsible citizens, but render unto God that which is God's. Give God yourself. Give God your life. Give God your chief allegiance. That's what he's saying. Now, when you hear that and you might think, well, when push comes to shove, what do I do when there's a conflict between rendering under Caesar that which is Caesar's and rendering unto God that which is God's? And I think what you see in how Jesus interacts with Pilate and the silence when, when he's standing before Pilate and as well as some of the other things that Jesus introduces along the way, I think we begin to see something utterly remarkable 
a wonderful wisdom for you and I as we consider the world in which we live now. On one hand, yes, we respect governing officials. We respect the rulers of our land. But ultimately, we revere God. Our ultimate allegiance lies with God. And if anyone ever tries to claim totalitarian control over your life or over anyone else in an oppressive sense, they may be resisted, but they're not resisted the way a military force would resist. They're resisted through love and compassion and sacrifice. Jesus is the one who introduces the category that leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. would champion during the civil rights movement. The whole idea of civil disobedience, peaceful protest, righteous resistance. Those are things we can embrace as followers of Jesus and we can engage with full peace of conscience knowing that yes we're going to be respectful citizens but if it ever comes where people are oppressed and and injustice is having its way we're going to step in and defend the defenseless but we're going to do it through what civil disobedience we're going to do it through peaceful protest we're going to do it through righteous resistance i think jesus gives us some categories to run with all the while we're praying for leaders all the while we're respecting leaders but at the same time we're going to render unto God that which is God's. And ultimately, people belong to God. So we love them that way. We serve them that way. But here, Jesus, in this moment, he's being treated unjustly because these charges that are being launched against him are trumped-up charges. They're saying, look, Jesus is trying to re- lead people away from Rome. He's trying to tell people not to pay taxes. All lies. None of it's true. But listen how Jesus responds in verse 4. It says, so Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. He was stunned by Jesus' silence. He He couldn't believe that Jesus would stand back and let them falsely accuse him. He wasn't speaking up. He wasn't defending himself. Pilate's never seen anything like this. But Jesus, again, is living according to a deeper reality. He has a mission. He has a purpose. So he's silent, and Pilate is amazed. He's amazed because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And the reality in which Jesus is engaging is a reality that Pilate knows nothing of. But then this story goes on in verse 6. Jesus ultimately is is treated unjustly, and, and this injustice is really displayed in the very next passage where you see him also suffering rejection. You see him in rejection where um, you have in verse 6, now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Mark's reminding us of a custom that Pilate carried for the people. where He'd release a prisoner. Then in verse 7, uh, we're told about a guy named Barabbas. We'll get to him in a moment. But look at verse 9. And he answered them, answered the crowd, uh, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now, to Pilate's credit, he recognizes Jesus is innocent. This is where the injustice comes into play. Jesus is an innocent man. And he, he's beginning to see that. And then he discerns. The only reason these religious leaders are opposed to you, Jesus, is because they're jealous of you. They're envious of you. And so he's recognizing that, and he's assuming, well, I'll just bypass these religious leaders, and I'll talk to the masses. I'll talk to the people. Maybe they will want me to release the king of the Jews. Maybe they like Jesus. So he goes to the people, but the chief priests got there first, and they rallied resistance to Jesus. They begin to arouse the crowd's resistance, so much so that the people reject Jesus in preference to a guy by the name of Barabbas. 
They're wanting Jesus to be crucified and they're wanting Barabbas to go free. It's a, it's a stunning turn of events because Barabbas, you, you were told in verse 7 that Barabbas was a rebel, that Barabbas had committed murder, that he was a member of a revolution. He was an insurrectionist. He tried to physically overthrow Rome. So do you see the dilemma that the people are in? They, they see Jesus, this pacifist, silent person who's not defending himself, who's about to be crucified. And they see Barabbas, a powerful, strong man who has already proven himself in battle, and they prefer Barabbas over Jesus. They want the forceful one more than the faithful one, and that's a problem. And I think that that shift happens because the people are disappointed with the type of Messiah Jesus has come to be. They don't understand the deeper realities of the kingdom of God. They don't understand the deeper realities of what God is doing in Jesus and what the cross would accomplish for them. They're, they're thinking so earthly. They haven't set their minds on the things above. They're not considering God and his ways in the world. So they're saying, well, I'm going with Barabbas. Jesus is a weakling. I want the strong one. And they reject to Jesus for this rebel and what you see in that moment is a stunning exchange it's an ironic illustration of the gospel an ironic illustration of the gospel where Jesus the innocent one steps into prison so that Barabbas the rebellious one can go free Mark is putting this story here so that we can understand everything that he's been prepping us for up to this moment. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Serve how? To give his life as a ransom for many. He came to take the place of many. And you see it ironically illustrated with the reversal, with him stepping into prison and Barabbas going free. It's an ironic it's an ironic illustration because think about who Barabbas is. Barabbas was a rebel. Who were you? Barabbas was someone who revolted against authority. Who were you? You are on some level a rebel. You are on some level one who revolts against authority. And I'm not talking about the authority of some earthly ruler or king. I'm talking about the authority of the God who created you. The God who put his image upon you. The God who loves you like crazy, who has a plan and a purpose for you. And what have you and I, what have we all done in various ways? We have all rebelled against him. We have all turned our backs upon his authority. We've all resisted and revolted against God in a myriad of ways. I know that to be true because I know myself. I know that to be true because I've read the scriptures. I've come to an understanding of the gospel that says, look, all people have sinned against God. All people have rebelled and revolted against their maker. So we are Barabbas. We should look at this moment and see ourselves in Barabbas. But we don't look at ourselves and we don't look and see ourselves in Barabbas and grow discouraged and dismayed and despairing. No, we hear the gospel in the fact that Jesus stepped in so that he could go free. Jesus literally took Barabbas' place. And literally, Jesus took your place as well. 
You see, when Jesus would suffer injustice and when he would suffer rejection and go to the cross, he did so not because he had in any way rebelled against his father. He did so because he submitted to the will of the father. What was the will of the father? To redeem you, to ransom you, to save you from your sin, to save you from your enemy, Satan, to save you from death. That was the father's will. That's the gospel. An ironic illustration, a changing of position where Jesus takes Barabbas' place and you read that and you think, Jesus took my place as well. He was rejected so that you and I might be accepted. That's the Jesus we serve and sing to. That's the gospel illustrated in, this, in the irony of this moment. But notice what goes down. You keep reading into verse 16. Into verse 16. So, I'm sorry, even verse 15. So Pilate, again, he was a man without a chest. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd. That's what people without chests do. They wish to satisfy the crowd. They are people pleasers. There's no core conviction that would cause him to stand firm on any matter. So he just wants to satisfy the crowd. Man without a chest. Released for them Barabbas and having, here it is, scourged Jesus. Scourged Jesus. He delivered him over to be crucified. And at that point in time, you see Jesus suffering not only injustice and not only rejection, you begin to see Jesus suffering shame. To be scourged means to be flogged. And the formal way in which a person was flogged under Roman rule was they were stripped naked. And they were tied to a post. And then a soldier would come with what's called the cat of nine tails, which was this leather whip. The straps on the end were tied and um, bone and metal and glass and various sharp objects were woven into the fabric of, of the, the whip on the end. And, and these soldiers would step up and just rip into the flesh of the condemned person. So when it says Jesus was scourged, that's what's happening. He's being beaten. He's being publicly humiliated and bullied in front of everyone else. And then if you keep going down to verse 16, it says that the soldiers called together the whole battalion. You realize a battalion could be up to 600 people? It's possible that Jesus was naked on a post. Eyes of 600 people were upon him. And they were witnessing his scourging as, as the cat of nine tails would be slapped against his back only to embed into his flesh, ripping it from his bone. We are told in the prophet Isaiah that Jesus would be beaten so much that you could hardly recognize him. Bullied and beaten beyond recognition. This is what's going down in Jesus. Then in verse 16, you see them heaping more shame upon him as they begin to mock him. They say, well, he's the king of the Jews. Let's treat him like one. Let's wrap him up in a, pur in a purple cloak and let's twist together a crown of thorns. Let's put that on his head. Let's, let's bow down and pay homage to him. Hell, king of the Jews. And let's... Let's give him, let's, let's strike him with, with a reed, which was kind of like a scepter. They're, they're beating him with the very thing, the, the symbol of a king. And then they spit on him, which, which is one of the most shameful things you could do to a person in the first century, to spit on them. And then they, again, kneel down in homage, mocking him. And they just have a filled day with Jesus. And he's treated shamefully in that moment, suffering egregious shame. <clears throat> then in verse 20, we're said that they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes, and then they led him out to be crucified. Jesus suffered injustice, he suffered rejection, he suffered shame, and in the end, he would be crucified. 
you take all these things into consideration, you find Jesus being misrepresented, you find Jesus being slandered, you find Jesus being reviled, rejected, flogged, mocked, insulted, struck, spat upon, shamed. I'm wondering if any of those words has ever been true in your human experience. Have you ever found yourself in similar situations where you experienced misrepresentation, where you were slandered or reviled or rejected, where you perhaps were beaten and abused, where you were mocked and insulted, where you were struck or spat upon or shamed? Uh, Has that ever been true of your experience? Well, if so, I want you to think about what Jesus is doing here, and I want you to consider some of the gospel implications of Jesus, our sympathetic Savior. Now, towering above Rio de Janeiro, there's a colossal statue of, of Christ, a massive statue that, that sits on top of a mountain, hovering over Rio de Janeiro, and, and it's called the Christ of Corcovado. And littered throughout that city, you have these, these slums known as favelas. And these favelas are urban slums where thousands of people lived in gross poverty, uh, sickness, suffering. It, it's a tough situation. So you imagine that and you, you join John Stott who tells a story. Imagine a poor man from one of these slums looked up at the Christ of Corcovado and decides to scale the mountain to meet with Christ. And so the, the person would climb the 2,300 feet up the mountain to get to that statue. And when, he, when that person arrives, he, after a difficult climb, the poor man would say to Jesus something like this, you know, I have climbed up to meet you, Christ, from the filthy confined quarters down there to put before you most respectfully these considerations. There are 900,000 of us down there in the slums of that splendid city, and you, do you remain here at Corcovado surrounded by divine glory? Then he says, go down there to the favelas. Don't stay away from us. Live among us and give us new faith in you and in the Father. Amen. Now, how do you think Christ would respond to such an entreaty? How do you think Christ would respond to that type of entreaty? How would you respond to someone who has a vision of Jesus reigning over everything but utterly detached from the real things of suffering in a fallen world? How would you respond to someone you're discipling in those moments who have these questions about the compassion of Christ, the sympathy of Christ, the salvation of Christ, who are wrestling through their sufferings, journeying through this world, and they come to these moments wondering, well, is Christ just reigning in glory and utterly indifferent to my pain here in in this world? Well, Stott tells us to consider, well, would not Jesus... Answer in reply in light of the suffering he endured on the cross. Would he not answer in reply, I did come down, didn't I? I did live among you, didn't I? And I still live among you, don't I? Stott would say, you know, we have to learn as followers of Jesus to climb the hill of Calvary and from that vantage point survey all of life's sufferings. The cross supplies the essential perspective from which to look at all of them. Sometimes we picture God lounging, perhaps dozing, in some celestial deck chair while the hungry millions starve to death. It is this terrible caricature of God which the cross smashes to smithereens. So how do we respond to the cold realities of injustice and rejection and shame? Will we respond not by 
climbing a mountain to meet with the Christ of Corcovado, we scale the mountain of Calvary and we behold Christ crucified. Because when we behold Christ crucified, we see that not only Jesus is sympathetic, we see him as Savior. We find one who not only understands the human condition because he experienced the human condition, we find one who overcomes the human condition. We find one who delivers his people through the sufferings that befall all of us. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the glory of our Savior. Not only does he understand and sympathize, he saves and delivers. So you think about that as you consider the injustice that you observe in the world that is the various forms that injustice can take. And you think about Christ on the cross. You think about the injustice that he suffered. And you think about how after being crucified on the cross, being treated in such an unjust way, you think about how the Father three days later vindicated him. You think about how the Father rose him from the grave and how the Father, how Jesus then kept rising and took his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father. From there he will come to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, that one day this Christ who suffered on the cross, who identified with human misery in that way, this Christ is gonna return and he's gonna execute justice. He's gonna set the world right. He's going to vindicate all the injustices that fall specifically upon his people. And we hope in that. We trust in that. And because we're living in light of that day, what does that do for you and I and our gospel implication? What does it mean is that you and I are free to identify with those who are oppressed and afflicted, those who are suffering unjustly right now. We are liberated to step across the other side and to step Uh, stand shoulder to shoulder with those who are oppressed and afflicted in the world that is. We are free to do that because we know Christ is coming. He's going to set everything right. So when the price of showing compassion or at the cost of, of engaging those types of things, we have nothing to lose. We have nothing to lose. So we, like Jesus, we cross the aisle and we identify with those who are oppressed. We stand shoulder to shoulder with those who are hurting and weeping. We stand next to those who are fearful and dismayed. We, We identify with the poor. We identify with the hurting. We identify with the oppressed. This is the type of Jesus we serve. You see, one of the things about the way in which Jesus endures injustice, understand that he endured injustice in such a way that led to his own personal detriment. One of the reasons why I think some followers of Jesus are unwilling to identify with the oppressed and engage areas of justice and matters of justice in the world that is, is that they are afraid for themselves. They don't want to risk their own personal detriment. But uh, to be honest with you, if we're going to live like Jesus, if we're going to go the way of Jesus who is willing to love and to forgive his enemies, and if you and I are going to love and forgive those who might be hostile towards us or oppose us, it may come at the cost of our It may come at the risk of our own personal detriment. But you can't show compassion without losing something. You can't engage justice without losing something. Anytime you give money to the poor, you're losing some, aren't you? Anytime you sit down and listen to someone's story who's oppressed and afflicted in this world, anytime you lend an ear, you're losing time, aren't you? You can't exercise compassion without losing something. But the beauty of the gospel is that 
Jesus always gives more than we give up. When we show the compassion of Christ, when we sympathize with those who are hurting in the world that is, understand, Jesus always gives more than we give up. So we're free as followers of Jesus to engage in justice, to oppose injustice, to do so, to exercise civil disobedience and engage in peaceful protest and righteous resistance. We can and we should as followers of Jesus in the world that is. That's one gospel implication. But then you think about your experiences with rejection and shame and you think about what the gospel has to say to you in the midst of your rejection and in the midst of your shame. Understand that those two obviously usually go hand in hand. They usually come together. Our feeling of rejection corresponds with our feelings of shame. And there are two types of shame you need to be mindful of. There's a type of shame that, and I mean this with with compassion, there's a type of shame that you should feel. There is a type of shame that you shouldn't try to escape or ignore. There is a type of shame that you should feel, and that shame is the shame that comes from your sin, from your rebellion, from your revolt. You should never be proud of the fact that you've rebelled against God. We should be ashamed of our sin. But we're not enslaved to the shame of our sin, are we? Because the good news of having a sympathetic Savior who died on the cross for our sins, the good news is that we have forgiveness. The good news is that we have a deliverer. The good news is that we have someone who covers our shame. This is precisely what we're told in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what Jesus accomplished for us in light of the shame we feel due to our sin. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to what? Put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Do you see what Jesus has done? There's a spiritual enemy who's set to make you wallow in your shame, to keep you, your face down in the mud of your shame. And, and Jesus has come, and he's not only delivered you, lifted you up, Jesus has put them to shame. He shamed shame. He, Jesus knows spiritual judo. He takes the strengths of the enemy. And he uses those strengths against them. He takes the weight of the enemy and he makes the enemy fall upon him himself. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. So although, yes, there's a sense in which we should feel uh, shame for our sin, there's a sense in which we are not enslaved to the shame of our sin because Jesus has shamed shame. He's flipped the script on it. He's disarmed the rulers and he's put them to shame. He's saying, look... My son died on the cross and disarmed you. My, cro- my son died on the cross and defeated you. So if you're feeling shame tonight because of your sin, look to the cross. Look to Christ crucified. See the sympathetic Savior. But then lastly, I want you to think about the shame that you shouldn't feel. There's a lot of us in this room who or wrestling with a shame that's not tied to our sin, it's not tied to our rebellion, it's not tied to our revolt, a shame that is tied to things that have been done to you. You've been mistreated, you've been abused, you've been neglected, you've been rejected, 
you've failed at something you were trying to achieve. There is shame that you're feeling right now that you should not feel. It's misplaced shame. What, what do you do with that? What do you do with your history of abuse? What do you do with your history of neglect? What do you do with that, with that type of shame? Well, once again, you scale the hill called Calvary. And you look at your experiences from that vantage point. And you consider what we're told in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2. We're told to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising, despising, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You look to the cross You look to what Jesus accomplished for you who endured the cross, and here's the word, despising the shame. Now, when it says that Jesus despised the shame of the cross, it does not mean necessarily that he hated it. What it means is Jesus minimized it. Jesus reduced the shame of the cross to nothing. In other words, Jesus will not be defined by the shame of the cross. He will not be defined by the suffering he endured under Pontius Pilate. And the hope of the gospel for you and for me, if you're wrestling with misplaced shame, understand that the gospel promises you will not ultimately and eternally be defined by the shame you feel right now. It will not define you. That's what it means for Jesus to despise the shame of the cross. When he goes to the cross, he opens up a way for shame to be despised in our lives, for it to be minimized, for it to be reduced to nothing, for it to lose its power over us. There is hope for you. Now, it may take time. It may take time for healing and recovery to come to your life, but understand healing and recovery is coming. So what you do is you follow the way of Jesus. We're told, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, he looked to the joy that was set before him. If you are wrestling with misplaced shame right now, look to the joy that is set before you, the hope that deliverance is coming, the hope that shame will no longer define you. You look up and you look forward. That's what we do in the face of misplaced shame. That's how we endure and engage the sufferings that correspond with a life in a fallen world. We scale the hill called Calvary and we view all of life from that vantage point. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for entering into this world and for identifying with human misery. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to come and to suffer under Pontius Pilate. It's a strange thing to pray, but thank you for suffering injustice. Thank you for suffering rejection. Thank you for suffering shame. Thank you for being the sympathetic Savior that you are. And I pray over these next few moments that you would draw near to us and help those of us who are hurting right now, who's wrestling with any type of suffering in this moment. I pray that your presence would be made known. I pray that the gospel would be applied, that you would give us grace to look up and to look out. Look to the joy that is set before us, God. We we trust you. We trust that you not only understand 
what we're going through, but you promise to overcome and to give grace for us to overcome what we're going through. And so God, I pray that you would draw near to us in this moment and you would further that process along in our lives in Jesus' name, amen.